Anyone taken the opportunity to read Amos this week, as I suggested? Yeah, one or two? Yeah. Good, good. That gives, uh, gives you a head start. Interesting book. Going to continue this series in the Minor Prophets and just pick out a few themes and uh, give a summary of what's going on. And in this book, the book of Amos, we encounter a man who is the last person you'd expect to be a prophet of God. Let's read verses 1, well, verse 1. And the words of Amos, who was among the sheep, sheep herders, or shepherds, from Tekoa, which is envisioned, which he envisioned in visions concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. That earthquake was quite famous in those days. This is a man who was a shepherd. Humanly speaking, everything about him would disqualify him for the role of a prophet. Firstly, he was just a poor farmer. He was from a place called Tekoa, which is 12 miles south of Jerusalem. It's described as being next to the wilderness, so it was not exactly the best place you would look for if you were going to farm or, or look after sheep. He also looked after sycamore trees, we're told, in chapter 7, verse 14. And sycamore trees produce a fig which was the food of the poorest of the poor in Israel. So he was doing the lowest work in the poorest of circumstances, in the most difficult place next to the wilderness. He was not like the urbane Hosea who we encountered last week, a northerner sophisticated from the city. This was a man who was no more than an unsophisticated country yokel who thought he had a message from God. Anyone relate to that? secondly he had no religious training he was not a member of the priestly family he had no education he was quite simply a man called and anointed by God for a prophetic ministry Smith Wigglesworth springs to mind or did for me as I was reading about the background of this guy thirdly Amos was a poor southerner whom God sent to preach to northerners This is someone I can relate to. (laughs) People are not always well received when they step out of their own people group. Amos was just a southern softy going to the northern rebels. And added to this, Israel and Judah had been at war on and off for about 200 years. And when Amos arrived, he didn't come to say, it's all right, we're at peace. He came to didn't come to encourage them, but rather he came to bring God's judgment upon them. And despite all of these hindrances, all of these things that would hold him back from being the man of God, the reality is he was the man of God. He was the one whom God handpicked, chose to go and do his work and bring that message to the northern tribes. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what your background. It doesn't matter what your education One person in the hand of God can accomplish much. It's all about the attitude of our heart and our willingness to serve him. So Amos arrives at Bethel in the north at the beginning of the book and begins to give the oracles of God that God has given him. And he describes them by saying, the Lord roars from Zion. Verse 2, have a look at it. He said, the Lord roars from Zion and from Jerusalem he utters his voice. 
And he's saying God is like a lion. He's roaring. So watch out. And having delivered the oracles, he picks up the same theme if you turn over to chapter 3. Verse 2, you only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. He's talking to Israel here. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Do two men walk together unless they have made an appointment? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion growl when he's den, from his den unless he has captured something? Does a bird fall into a trap on the ground when there is no bait in it? Does a trap spring up from the earth when it captures nothing at all? If a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people tremble if a calamity occurs in a city? Has not the Lord done it? Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. A lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord has spoken. But who can prophesy? Who can, who can but prophesy? And he's saying that God is like a lion. And he's roaring out his prophetic word over the land. And he's speaking forth that which the people need to hear. And the significance of this is that the Lord was seen as the shepherd of Israel. The shepherd would keep the the flock protected from a lion. And yet suddenly God is being presented not just not as the shepherd, but as the predator on the sheep, the one who will bring them to the place of destruction. Such was the seriousness of what they had done. In in verse 12, it says this of that same chapter three. Thus, the Lord says, Just as the shepherd snatches from the lion's mouth a couple of legs or a piece of an ear, so will the sons of Israel dwelling in Samaria be snatched away with the corner of a bed and the cover of a couch. He's saying they'll just about get away, a few of them, with the bits and pieces because they're in the hands of God now because they've refused to listen to the word that's come to them. But having come to Bethel, going back to the beginning for a moment, he's there. And Bethel was a place of worship. It was a place of sacrifice. It was a place where historically God had appeared to Jacob. So it had great significance in terms of the, in the heritage of this nation that Amos had gone to. And he stands before this place of worship, this place of sacrifice, this heri- um, place of heritage. And he starts to proclaim his oracles. And his first oracle, if you go back to chapter 1, is about Damascus. And his second oracle is about Tyre. And his third oracle is about Gaza. So actually, what he's doing is picking up judgment on the nations around Israel, their neighbours. And so you can see them standing there. Well, we don't like Damascus very much. And we don't think much of Tyre. And we're not keen on Gaza. That's where the Philistines live. And so the smile is breaking out on their face. God is bringing judgment on these surrounding nations. Somebody's not happy. (laughs) And so the the smile is breaking out on their faces. Not on their faces, but on the people of Israel. Their expectation is that the day of the Lord will be accompanied by judgment on the surrounding nations who have given them grief over the years. And Amos is proclaiming exactly that, judgment on the surrounding nations. And then he begins to proclaim judgment on Israel's cousins, on Ammon, on Moab, and on Edom. You can see the smile on their faces getting a bit bigger. And then he condemns their sister nation, Judah. The smile by now is now a wide grin. 
And then he turns on them. And picking up what we said about the situation into which Amos and Hosea were prophesying, the northern kingdom had been going through a time of affluence during which the rich were getting richer and the poor were getting poorer. And the poor were getting poorer because the rich were exploiting them. In chapter 2, verse 6 to 8, it says this. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. And all of this, Amos is saying, look at your state of this nation. And he proclaims their indifference towards the, and their exploitation of the poor. He proclaims their moral laxity. He proclaims their disregard for their privileged position of being the chosen people of God which will result in the loss of their wealth, their fine furniture, their second houses, and will bring about, ultimately, exile from the land. This is the heart of his message. And in chapters 4 to 6, Amos repeats and expands many of these themes with respect to their treatment of the poor, even accusing them of taxing the straw and the grain of the poor so that they can so that the rich can then build their mansions on these taxes. That's in 5 verse 11. And he confirms that that judgment would follow. In chapter 7, we see the prayers, the power of prayers of a righteous man. We haven't got time to read it. But in that passage, God says, right, I'm going to do this to Israel. And Amos says, are you sure? You really want to do that? And the Lord says, Because you've prayed, no, I'm not going to. Right, I'm going to do this to Israel. And Amos says, are you definite, Lord? And he says, no, because you've prayed, I'm not going to do it. The prayers of a righteous man accomplish much. Amos' prayers hold back some of the judgment, but not all of it. But God does say, I'm going to put a plumb line up against the nation. He says, I'm going to hold a straight level and see how they line up. And if as a result of them not lining up with that straight level, there will be judgment. It will come. If God was to hold a plumb line up to our nation today, how would we fare? The the plumb line, of course, is his word. How would we fare? That's what Amos effectively was doing in his prophesying. He was holding a plumb line up to the nation. And then in the middle of this chapter, in the middle of chapter 7, we have an autobiographical section, the only one in the whole book. In verse 10, then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent word to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is unable to endure all his words. For thus Amos says, Jeroboam will die by the sword and Israel will certainly go from its, ex- from its ex- land into exile. Then Amaziah said to Amos, go you see, flee away from the land of Judah and there eat bread and there do your prophesying. But no longer prophesy at Bethel, for it's the, res- the sanctuary of the king and the royal residence. Then Amos said, replied to Amaziah, 
I'm not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet, for I'm a herdsman and a grower of sycamore trees. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Now hear the word of the Lord. You are saying, You shall not prophesy against Israel, nor shall you speak against the house of Isaac. Therefore, says the Lord, your wife will become a harlot in the city. Your sons and your daughters will fall by the sword. Your land will be parceled out by measuring line, and you yourself will die upon unclean soil. Moreover, Israel will certainly go from its land into exile. There he was prophesying in this place, Bethel. And Amaziah, who's the priest, one of the priestly family, who should have been standing with him, instead says, you're upsetting the king in all that you're saying. Stop it. Go home. And Amos says, no, I'm going to carry on prophesying. I'm not a prophet, I'm just a poor man. But God has given me a word to say to my nation, and I'm going to give it. He was determined. Nevertheless, regardless of whatever came, whatever persecution he received, whatever instructions, whatever injunctions, whatever came against him to stop, he determinedly shared what God had given him to say. How will we react when the world tells us to stop preaching the gospel? Can't happen here, can it? Well, it already has. Anyone know, heard of the name Victoria Wasteney? Anyone heard that name? She works for the health service as a physiotherapist in North London. She developed a friendship with a Muslim in her department. They began to share their lives together and share their faiths together. Over time, she began to invite her to one or two Christian meetings. She gave her a book that shared how a Muslim came through to faith in Jesus. They had conversations and then Seemingly from some pressure, this Muslim woman reported her. She was dismissed. She appealed. The appeal has been dismissed. Simply for sharing the gospel. Her only recourse now is to go to the European Court of Human Rights. What happens if she's told she cannot share the gospel any longer? What implication does that have for all of us? Have you shared the gospel in your workplace, at school? Have you shared with a colleague what God has done? We're all in danger. How will we react? How will we react? I fear our freedom for sharing the gospel in the future will will be curtailed. Does that mean we're going to stop sharing the gospel? It's too important. It's too crucial. This is the first of many cases that will come. How will you stand? The real issue for Amos was that the people he was preaching to were complacent and comfortable. The economy was doing well. There was peace on their borders. The religion established by Jeroboam two centuries before, centered on Bethel and Dan, was still going. The people had a focal point for their religious life. And even though it was concentrated on two golden calves, not quite the, the worship as it should have been, nevertheless, it was in the midst of their nation. Surely, in all these ways, God was blessing them. They had no real need to repent. 
the hints that have been given to them in, in terms of the occasional famines, plagues, a massive earthquake, were all ignored by them as being signs of impending judgment, as they were still comfortable and at peace. Now, this is the truth. When we're too comfortable, complacency kills faith. When we're comfortable and at peace, we have no perceived need of God. When people are comfortable in their lives, that's when they start to grow cold. Listen, financial prosperity, career advancement, relational stability are not the signs of God's blessing. God may bless us in those ways, but they can also be a stumbling block to us. Fulfilling the purpose of God in our, from, from fulfilling the purpose of God in our lives. When we get caught up with our career, we can neglect our calling. When we get so comfortable with our material goods, we may not be ready to go when God says go. When we get so caught up in our relationships, we become dependent on them instead of on God. We as a people are called to discipleship. We are called to go through the narrow gate, the path less trodden. Christianity is not just about coming to a set of beliefs, but a change of ownership. I am no longer in control of my life. God is. I must submit my will and all that I have to him. It's only then that I'll find my true destiny. Be all that I'm called to be. It's only then that I'll truly please my father in heaven. They were complacent. He spoke a word. And I'm not judging anyone, but if we're too complacent, if we're too comfortable, beware. Faith can grow cold. Having said all of that, I want to pick up now on the positives of this book in chapter 9. Nearly all of the prophetic books have a section of hope. And Amos is no exception to this. Let's start reading chapter 9, verse 11. In that day, I'll raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed. When the mountains will drip with sweet wine and all the hills will be dissolved. Also, I restore the captivity of my people Israel and they will be they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. And I will also plant them on their land and they will not again be rooted from their land, which I have given them, says the Lord. Your God. Even in the midst of the prophetic that says exile is coming, there is the promise of restoration. Because our God is a God of restoration. He's a God who takes that which is destroyed and he brings it to wholeness. He takes that which is lost and recovers it. He takes that which is broken and builds it up again. And there is always hope, even in the midst of judgment. Let's start. With the, with the opening line, it says, in that day. What day is he talking about? It's the reference to the day of the Lord. The expected arrival of the Messiah. In that day. 
And it's referred to in all the prophetic books. And Amos gives us some specific things to expect when the day of the Lord comes or came. It also highlights us for something um, for us that the day of the Lord has already come and yet is still to come. And this is something, and I'm going to use a technical word for a moment, called prophetic foreshortening. And what that means is, in in the Old Testament scriptures, you have scriptures referring to the first coming of Jesus, right mixed up with scriptures referring to the second coming of Jesus. And some people have got into error because they mix it all up and don't distinguish one from the other. We have the benefit of hindsight. We can say, well, that must refer to Jesus' first coming, but that must be part of his second coming. And that's exactly what we can do as we look at these scriptures. And this begins with a reference to David's fallen tent. What's he talking about? Anyone want to make a suggestion? Nobody dare anymore, do they? (laughs) David says the temple. No, it's not. No. What's he referring to when he says David's fallen tent or David's fallen booth? Nope. Nope. Right. We're going to have to go back to it. Turn with me back to 1 Chronicles and chapter 16. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's telling me I've got to shut up because it's now quarter to you. Am I okay to go on for a few more minutes? <laughs> I haven't got too long to go. <laughs> One, Chronicle, 1 Chronicles chapter 16. Page 393 in mine. (laughs) 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 1. And they bought in the ark of God and placed it inside the tent which David had pitched for it. And they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. And he distributed to everyone of Israel, both man and woman, to everyone a loaf of bread and a portion of meat and a raisin cake. And he appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord, even to celebrate and to thank and praise the Lord God of Israel. Asaph the chief, and second to him, Zechariah, then Jehiel, and Shemiramoth, and Jehiel, I bet you're glad I'm reading these, Mattathiah, Eliab, Beniah, Obed-Edom and Jeel and the music instruments, harps, lyres. Also Asaph played loud sounding cymbals, crash and Beniah and Jehaziel. The priests blew trumpets continually before the ark of the covenant of God. That's David's fallen tent. It's the tent he established in Jerusalem when he brought the ark back. He didn't bring the tabernacle. In verse 39 of this chapter 16, it says the tabernacle was still um, somewhere else. Uh, I can't remember where. Gibeon. Gibeon, thank you. It was still out in Gibeon. And they were still making the sacrifices that were established in the law before the tabernacle out there. But something different was going on in Jerusalem. Yes, they sacrificed when they brought it in. But it wasn't appointed as a place of sacrifice. 
It was appointed as a place of worship. And David appointed worshippers to come and to sing and to make a noise on their cymbals and on their instruments day after day after day. And before the tabernacle, before the, the um, Ark of the Covenant, in that fallen tent, worship was lifted to heaven constantly through the day, day and night. And it was a place of magnificent praise and worship and the presence of God was there. It was different. And Amos prophesied that that tent would be raised again. And if you turn to Acts chapter 15, James, in proclaiming what would happen, was happening with the church, James said, this is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Amos. David's fallen tent has been raised up again in the church. And the church is not now a place of sacrifice because Jesus has made the sacrifice. The church is a place where the worship of God must be rising up to heaven day and night. This is the place where we come to encounter God. This is the place where we come and experience that encounter with him on a day-to-day basis. Do not take this privilege lightly. Come in enthusiasm. Come with a heart of worship. Come with a heart that's going to lift up praise to God because that's what we're here for. And that's what God has established when he's re-established the fallen tent of David. This is the place of worship. Don't come half-hearted. Don't come and sit and mourn and mope. Don't come and sit with your mouth down to the floor. Come and lift up your hands. Lift up your heart. Lift up everything you have in worship of him. For this is the place where worship must take place. The fallen tent of David has been reestablished. That's exactly what what James said in Acts 15 in quoting Amos chapter 9. It's our privilege to come before the ark, not before the literal ark, but the ark which represents the presence of God. And when we come into the house of God, which is not the building, but the gathered people of God, we come to worship. Embrace the privilege of worship that is ours in the new covenant. And then he comes to these verses where it says the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman. And these are verses full of promise of restoration for the land of Israel. And there is a sense in which it's literally being fulfilled in Israel because the promise is that God will no longer remove them from the land, that they are re-established there, never to be taken out again. Now we know that that has not yet happened. Because when they were restored in 535 BC, they were then taken out again in AD 70 and in AD 132 with the Bar Kokhba Rebellion. But something has happened in this last generation to re-establish Israel in the land. And that has happened in fulfillment of the prophecy of Amos. And when Jesus returns, they are never going to be um, rejected from that land again. Because God will establish his his purposes amongst his chosen people. But the great thing about the new covenant is we're included. And it's going to be a time of... Fantastic blessing. And it's also a time of the restoration of everything that was lost in the, in the fall. In the fall, the land brought forth thorns and thistles and things that restricted fruitfulness. And yet God says through Amos that in those, those final days, the, when the world is restored, it will be like you can't stop the wine from being produced on the mountains. They will just drip with sweet wine. Hallelujah! <laughs> 
Fruitfulness will just burst forth in every way possible. And we'll be party to that fruitfulness that, that, of the restored land. And there have been times when we, in revival where we have seen the reaper overtaken by the plowman. When people respond to the gospel faster than it's actually been preached. And my prayer is that we may see it again in our day. Because it's only revival that will bring our nation back from the edge. May we lay aside all that gets in the way from seeing that happen. May we pray to see such an outpouring of the spirit of God that we cannot keep up with the work as God brings so many people into his kingdom. Hallelujah. Who said the prophets were boring? 